Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, what's happening, Archons? This is Help from Future Self, a casual Keyforge conversation between Keyforge pals. My name is Alex, a.k.a. Scuzzy Gruen, and I'm joined by my pal Rick, the Wheeling Keyforger. Hey, how you doing? And Boulevard Paper Fight himself, it's Blake. Yo, what's going on? And it has been a busy week for us in Keyforge, I believe. You guys have gotten the opportunity to play a lot more games than I have, but I know that we have all had the opportunity to play some Keyforge. What was your week in Keyforge like, Rick? How many times did you get to play over the course of the last seven days? Well, we all had that Tuesday. Um, Monday night was a little bit of a, of a sealed event. I've been crashing on the Crucible a little bit, not too much. Actually just finished a game. And uh, other than that, not too much. Just doing a lot of thinking about Keyforge. As we all do, as we all do. How about yourself, Blake? Yeah, I've been, I think I've been playing too much Keyforge, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Probably. No such thing. Yeah, I, well, I, spent, yeah. I spent way too much time on the Crucible. Um, I'll, we'll get into that later, though, in, in relation to that. But um, I basically, we played last Tuesday. Rick and I entered a sealed tournament at One Stop Shop, which is seeming to be our new spot to go to. And I won that seal tournament, which was pretty awesome, with a uh, a saucy deck that had uh, some fun untamed in it. And um, then we, uh, like Rick said, we played a, just a four person sealed on Monday, and mm-hmm. it was really cool because we every single person had a Mars deck, and it made some, for some very interesting interaction. And then um, I actually started playing on the tabletop simulator, getting in some Age of Ascension reps. And it's, I got to say, it's a really fun uh, way of, of playing Keyforge. Um, just to give everyone who doesn't know what it is, it's basically a board game simulator and there is an emulator in it for Keyforge and you just load your decks in. Uh, but you have to have a, uh, a Discord chat or some form of uh, vocal chat going on so you can talk to one another as you play and you have to do everything manually. So it's like you're actually playing, but in a digital world, which makes it a really fun experience. So my understanding of Tabletop Simulator is that it is not super automated. Like the, it has sort of, you have to kind of do everything manually and that sort of really forces you to think about the interactions that are happening as opposed to the Crucible, which of course we all love, which is a lot more automated for convenience. So slightly longer games with Tabletop Simulator, but a lot more thinking behind everything you do. Is that correct? Would that be a correct assessment? Yeah, it's... It's no more thinking than real life. It's as automated as it is in real life, basically. The only thing ah. is you don't have to shuffle it by hand. You just shake the deck, and that shuffles it. That's, that's about as automated as it gets, but it's literally like real life, the way you play. You have to grab the ember yourself. Your opponent literally gives you ember and stuff like that. You capture the same way. It's, uh, it's, it's a really cool... It's, it's maybe a little bit more complicated because you don't have the natural instinct of grabbing. You have to know the hotkeys to... To make it work but it's not overly complicated but it does have a bit of a learning curve interesting so my other understanding is that all the cards have been programmed in from aoa so it is the only way to play age of ascension virtually now is that correct yes that's correct oh wow so when you got to play were you playing age of ascension exclusively yes nice and how did that feel in the virtual space um it was honestly it's not the same as as in real life it's part of it is is it's hard when you're focusing on on you know getting the controls correct i've only played a handful mm-hmm. of games there um shout out to uh dan from sanctimonious for showing me the ropes on there and uh, being patient while i uh grasp it and uh yeah it's just been it's, it's been really fun though because you get to see the gameplay you get to see how the aoa decks interact with one another uh, aside from a sealed which maybe is not the uh the best way to 
to right now see the full potential of AOA because you don't really know what you're going up against. People aren't choosing the caliber of deck they're bringing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great way to see AOA and get to jam some of your decks and get to know them a little bit more to decide uh, how you want to run with them. Interesting stuff. Um, was the decision to exclusively play AOA because you want to get to know the set better? Uh, more just get to know some of my decks more. That's all. I, I wouldn't be opposed to using uh, do a, a Coda deck versus an AOA deck just to see, but I just have a bunch of AOA decks that I have not played at all, and I feel like we've been having a lot of events lately where we haven't been having that casual night where you can just test stuff out uh, mm-hmm. for us locally like in recent times, so... Uh, that's another reason I just want to use it as a means to uh, just see what some of the decks that I think are fun and could be really interesting are all about. Cool, cool. Uh, so let's get into one of our regular features here on Help from Future Self. This is a little one we like to call Over Under, where we pick a card that we either underestimated and has been over-delivering for us in play, or that we overestimated the impact of and has been under-delivering. I'll start things off this week. I got one that uh, honestly, like it's it's a uh, a card that exists in uh, Call of the Archons, but I never had a deck with it before, and it's not until recently that I realized the absolute power that it offers. This one's called Oath of Poverty. Are you guys familiar with the card? Yes, sir. In name only. <laughs> All right, so here's how Oath of Poverty works. It's a Sanctum card. Get one pip of amber for playing it. Oath of Poverty states, destroy each of your artifacts, gain two for each artifact destroyed this way. So a trade-off. You're basically trading in whatever artifacts you happen to have on the board for two amber, and you can't choose which ones. You have to use uh, get rid of all of the ones you have. Um, so this always sounded like like a pretty good deal to me, but in games recently where I've been playing with it, it has done so much for me. Um, even a deck that has an average number of artifacts, let's say four or five, you have the potential to get in one card play upwards of 10 or 11 amber that's insane no other cards in the game really offer that kind of value so the absolute bare minimum you get out of oath of poverty is a pip of amber that's if you got no artifacts on the board if you have even one artifact that's three that's insane that's a virtuous works two artifacts on the board five no other card offers that like, it is ridiculous what this card's been delivering for me. So I had always overestimated it, and it is hugely over-delivering for me. Oath of Poverty, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I enjoy that card, too. I And I, and I noticed there is a, it seems like a, we're seeing more artifacts now. And especially if you, it's in Sanctum, there, there are a couple slightly useless artifacts that exist in Sanctum that you have no reservations about chucking into Oath of Poverty. Yeah, absolutely not. Like, Hallowed Blaster... You know, heal three damage from a creature, sure. You know, but uh, would I rather uh, sack it and get two amber? Absolutely. Um, What about you, Blake? You got an over-under for us? I do, and oddly enough, it is also a Coda card. Uh, But I've been, I didn't think much of it, and I didn't have very many decks with it in Call of the Archons, but it's been emerging in my Age of Ascension decks, and uh, the deck I won the SEAL tournament with uh, had it, and I started to notice a fun little combo with it. Uh huh. So the card is called Piranha Monkeys. It's a two-powered creature in Untamed, and it has a play reap effect that says deal two damage to each other creature. Now, it's great if someone has a speech sigil out because you literally play it, deal two damage to everything, and then reap with it and deal another two damage to everything. So it's a it's a two-power creature that board wipes, and you get an ember off of it from that standpoint, which is really cool if you end up playing against someone with a speed sigil or you have a speed sigil so that's one cool thing with it and then 
the way that I really found the fun uh, the fun times with it was uh, Darna, and Darna is a uh, is a creature in Untamed as well that has a playability that says for each damage friendly creature gain one Ember. So you play Piranha Monkeys, deal damage to your entire board, and then play Darna, and you literally gain Ember for every creature you have out there. So you can you can gain depending on your board state and if you have a nice set of something like a Brobnar out or something where you have beefy creatures that are not going to die from it, mm-hmm. you can essentially uh, really reap the rewards late game with uh, with this card. Obviously, Darna is a great way to activate that, but even if you were to have something like Cleansing Wave and Sanctum, it'll give you basically the same effect the following turn. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's a bunch of ways that it, it, it combos with. A, yeah, like a Sanct- if you had a Sanctum Untamed lineup with those three cards, you could be having uh, some some very interesting turns all right rick have you got one for us this week uh not necessarily however i do i actually just noticed when i was looking at some stuff i have two decks in aoa one with each panpaka twin and Mm -hmm. i am just dying to play those just to see if they are as good as i think they will be all right. Well, let me let me ask you this. So you're uh, you're estimating that they're going to be big game changers for you. They're going to provide a lot of value. Definitely more than not. Yeah. So let me ask you guys this question because this is one of the things that I think is really hard to assess in KeyForge. Oftentimes, we only rate cards based on what we think they're going to provide for us from an amber or key standpoint. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, note that both the cards that Blake and I chose are ones that provide you with a little bit of board control, but then we both talked about the way that they can provide Amber, right? Yeah. Whereas Pampaka's, uh, the, the the two separate guys, they essentially are just to provide power and uh, uh, combat ability to your board. Yeah. So do you think that that will ultimately re- result in you getting more keys? Is there is there a connection between those two? I think it'll possibly clear the way for others to reap in in the because uh, I I have a lot of untamed decks with a lot of untamed creatures, so if I can get those two or at least one of the two to help clear the room for others to reap and not have any objections, then I think that'll work. Again, whether that actually plant pans out the way I'm thinking it might, I don't know. That's but that's why I'm dying to play them just to see if it actually, if my thoughts are what actually happens. All right, we'll have to check in with you on a future episode. Let's get into the main topic for today. So we were all playing a Archon Chainbound event on this past Tuesday at One Stop Games here in Vancouver, and each of us, uh, I think, brought a slightly different philosophy to what deck we chose. So. I guess the question I want to ask you, gentlemen, is how do you choose what deck you're going to play at an individual event? Blake, why don't you get us started? Okay, so uh, it's probably best that I go first because mine is somewhat of a tale of woe. <laughs> so I completely overthought the process, and um, I was like actually preparing for it at a level that was super unnecessary, and I played something like two decks between the two of them, I got in, I think, over 30 games on the Crucible in like less than a week. So it was an absurd amount. And it and it, it really took the fun out of it because, I mean, it's one thing to be playing your decks to get, you know, really see the ins and outs. 
-hmm. And that did occur, but it also got to the point where there is a level of in knowing your deck really, really well, you also lose some of the the excitement of discovery mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. you're playing. And that was that was a big thing that happened. And and I started overthinking like what what I should bring, why I should bring it, what it, the matchups were gonna be, things like that. And um, as a result, both decks happened to have shadows in it, and they both also happened to have speed sigils in them. And uh, the shadows was a, a cornerstone of the decks. And uh, and as a result, I just ended up feeling like I was seeing shadows so much that I just, by the end of like that Tuesday night, I was like, man, I'm so tired of shadows right now. Like I need to take a break from playing a shadows in a deck just because I've been playing too much with it. And it does have a very powerful ability, uh, but it just got monotonous for me doing that. So I ended up for that tournament choosing the one-stop shop deck, the Gamma deck that I won the previous week uh, from the SEAL tournament, which was a Fagin double urchin deck. And I didn't have one before, so it was my first time uh, getting an experience with that, and that's why I spent the week doing that. And so I basically chose that deck in the end because I couldn't decide between the two. I was literally, like, last minute deciding. I was like, you know what, I'm going to choose this one because it's named after the store we're going to, so it felt appropriate. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I overthought the process, and uh, I actually took the fun out of why we play Keyforge in doing so. And um, it was a good lesson. Like I, I learned a valuable lesson from it and not to overthink it. It's a chain bound event. It's not a vault tour. And I think I went at a way too high of a level and kind of took some of the, the fun out of Keyforge for me. So it was a good lesson, but I basically tried to choose the best deck possible instead of uh, just jamming a new deck basically and seeing how it goes in chain bound interesting so is it just a case where you you know you get in too deep into the analysis paralysis and you can't quite figure out which is going to work best like you're overthinking potential matchups and so forth is that the thought process that's going on inside your head yeah to a degree that was that was definitely what it was and um my other deck i was debating was a racing deck and it was like it's a really powerful racing deck but i went for that one in the end so i'm like you know what it's one-stop shop like this is a one-stop shop deck it's going to be fun to play here. So I went with that. And I, when I mean literally like last minute decided to go with that one, I was on the train and I was sleeving it up while I was on the train heading to the, the, the shop basically. So, so it was like that last minute, but I had, I played a lot of games with it, like a lot of games. So it wasn't like I wasn't familiar with the deck or anything, but yeah, it's just one thing I noticed. And I ended up going two and two in the tournament. And, and I honestly didn't have, as optimal a time as I normally do. The greatest part about the tournament was there was a lot of new players there and it was great getting to help and connect with new players. That was that was the mm -hmm. most fun I had at mm -hmm. the tournament. And mm -hmm. I think we all noticed that. We had a lot of new faces there and 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 it was great to see. Absolutely, 100%. I had the opposite, opposite experience from you. Um, I did it relatively well in the tournament. Uh, I went three and one, but I think it was because I literally picked a deck out of the box of decks that I brought with me and just went, you know what, let's go for it and see what happens. It's a deck that I've played a little bit and I do okay with and I'm comfortable with, but ultimately I feel like the reason that I was doing well with it was that I had some complementary matchups as far as uh, the, the decks that I was playing against went. A lot of them just didn't have answers for what this deck does. Uh, but the other thing was that I just felt loose and comfortable because I wasn't so hyper-focused on winning that I wasn't overthinking everything. A lot of what I was doing with Sir Azurzor, the Taciturn Alpha, that's the name of the deck, 
was literally just going, all right, let's see what happens. And I was taking a lot more risks because I found that I wasn't super over-invested in winning. And somehow, paradoxically, that led to me getting a lot more wins. So I think there's got to be something to be said for uh, choosing a deck that you're not overly convinced of every single aspect of it, letting yourself breathe a little bit with it, not putting a super huge amount of of pressure on yourself or the deck to perform in the way that you think it's going to do, and just letting the games develop naturally. I think there's a value in that. Obviously, it's not always going to be the case that it works out for you, but in this case, it happened to, and I thought it was uh, an interesting experience for that. I'd agree with that for Chainbound, for sure. Definitely. Rick, how do you choose a deck to play a Chainbound? Well, lately, I've been on a mission. And what's that mission? I took a deck that I've got to early Chainbound events, and I absolutely played it horribly, and I got it to a 2-6 and six record. Now I am, I believe, 6-8 and eight on with this deck. I am bound and determined to get it to above a 500 record and they have chains on it. I've got the chains now being six and eight. It's only two chains, but I've got them. I actually like chains, so I'm on a mission with it to go higher. So your selection was purely based on the fact that you have this very specific goal in mind. You want to get that deck as highly chained as possible. Yep. All right, so let me ask you, that deck has some chains on it now. How does it feel to play now that you're dealing with that? Uh, I've only got two chains, so they're... They go away rather rapidly, and it still does lose, but, I mean, it lost before, too. So I don't think the two chains change it in any way. We'll have to see what it does this weekend and with more chains after this weekend. So hopefully it'll go well. All right. So I noticed one of the other things from this particular event is that a lot of people were playing Call of the Archon. So I got to ask you this, and I need an honest answer from both of you. Do you think people are choosing Call of the Archons because it's a better set? Or is it because they're more comfortable with it and therefore think that they're more likely to win games? I think the lack of Crucible play is, is, is a factor in that. I don't know if people are... Well, for for all we know is people could be on different missions. Like, what if people are trying to test, like, how many chains does this deck stop performing at the level I know it can? And when does that handicap start impacting mm-hmm. the win percentage? I feel like that is something that could be, maybe they're preparing for something bigger. Maybe it's just a curiosity experiment. Um, but I think it is a familiarity. Maybe people are not sold. A lot of people, I think, are not fully sold on Age of Ascension yet. Maybe on a mm-hmm. competitive level, because I think... On a fun level, you know that it's a lot of fun. And I think it's just a matter of people are maybe reading into literature and seeing stats of tournaments that are happening, like fall tours and stuff, and seeing the discrepancy in decks of Coda versus Age of Ascension, which I don't think is is odd that you're seeing more, more Coda decks. I mean, at the time when Age of Ascension was printed, I believe there must have been at least 800,000 Coda decks when Age mm-hmm. of Ascension released. So we're at we cracked a million. So that means there's essentially only 200,000. It's such a small amount. Like we're not even close to having the sample size to see what truly is good and isn't or the experience of time played to determine these factors. So I think it's maybe just a level of comfort and we got to like, look at our one-stop shop, like tournaments. We've had two weeks in a row. We've had um, over 15 players 
And when we've been going to past events, we've we've been not even getting half of that a lot of the time. So maybe it's also the the tournament size, and because it's a bigger tournament, people want to come with something they know they can go deep with because they understand the deck. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, let me ask you, Rick, did you play against more Coda or more Age of Ascension? I think it might have been a 50-50 split. Maybe a little bit more Coda. But I actually, to be very honest, I can't remember at this moment. All right. Out of curiosity, then, the deck you're playing is a Coda deck. Yes. Is there any Age of Ascension decks that you would feel comfortable taking to an event like this, knowing other people were going to be playing Coda decks? Well, actually, one of the AOA decks that I really want to get to is another Time Traveler deck that I got. So I'm hoping it'll it'll do well. In face-to-face matchups against Blake, it's done not too bad, but my Coda deck is the far superior. To speak to Blake's point and to integrate what you were saying, Rick, I really do feel like the lack of online play as well as the comfort level of what people have and knowing what you're going to go up against really has been impacting what decks we're seeing out in the wild so far. I think that it's going to take the ability for us to play and really get to know the set to be able to really make the assessment of why people are playing what they play. Um, It'll be interesting stuff. Just on a side note of that, though, I think my best deck is an Age of Ascension deck, and it has six chains on it, so I just didn't bring it this week. I don't know why. I mean, getting my first Fagin deck, being at this point in the game and never having one, and getting one that was named after the shop kind of did sway my my thought process, but I think my best deck is an AOA deck, and it and it's so far proven that I've had very... Um, I've, I mean, I've only had one loss out of two chain bounds, so it's it's very powerful, and I and I honestly... I would never play it in a casual format. It feels mm-hmm. way too like uh, disgusting in the, some of the things it does. <laughs> like it's a it's a dis logos shadows lineup with three routine jobs and two exhumes and two yurks. So it does some really gross things. Not to mention having a Ronnie in there, which is always fun. So it's 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 not a deck that I would ever bring to a casual game just because of the way it it plays. But it feels really fun as like a competitive deck that you bring because you think it has a capability to really take things down. And, and I'm actually going to be switching to that deck now for all chain bounds, because now I'm on a mission to get it to power level two. And I want to see at what chain level does it stop performing at the level to uh, do what I know it can. All right, let's move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. It is the title segment. We call it Help Help from Future Self. Self. And it's basically about those level up moments that you have while playing Keyforge. Those moments where you make a little connection in your brain, something that never really occurred to you before. I have one for this week, and I got to give the big shout out to our bros over at Bouncing Death Quark because they're the ones who hit me to this. They did a great episode recently where they assessed turn one plays. Um, For the longest time, I think, whether consciously or unconsciously, my first thought with turn one plays was always, if you have a card in your hand that's going to generate a lot of amber, play it. So your virtuous workses, your treasure maps, your uh, fertility chance, play those cards. And I don't even know why I was doing it other than it seemed like a good idea to get out to an early start and set the pace of the game. Listening to their episode, they made a point of saying, the most value you can get is putting out something that has to be dealt with by your opponent because you are forcing them to do something. Whatever plan they may have had when they picked their hand or whenever they got their mulligan hand, 
you are forcing them to change it. So they're talking about putting out creatures like the witches. They're talking about creatures like uh, the Ember Imp. They're talking about John Smith. Anything that you can put out right away that somebody knows, if I do not deal with this problem, it's going to cause me huge problems on turn two. So not only do you get the advantage of forcing them to deal with it, there's a psychological advantage as well. You're applying pressure to your opponent. I don't feel like you get the same amount of pressure by playing Amber. And I wasn't 100% sold on this till I put it into practice this past week. And what it worked out for me was every single time I followed that advice, I put out the high pressure creature. It worked out very well for me because it forced my opponent to react to me instead of vice versa. And I thought that was a really cool and very special moment for me as a player. So shouts out to the Bouncing Death Court guys. They're incredible. Indeed, yeah. I actually have something funny in relation to listening to that podcast. So I listened to it on Monday before we went to Sealed, and I had that information in mind before we were playing. And uh, in one of my second game, I thought about that. I'm like, you know what? Let's put out a high-value creature that is going to stick, and I can either use and set up my next turn and have value, or uh, instead of, you know, something more situational. And so in this deck, I had uh, in my opening hand a Sanctum Guardian, and I was like, this is perfect. Put it out, it has Taunt. Uh, Sanctum Guardian is a 6-1 Sanctum Creature Spirit Knight with Taunt, and its fight and reap ability is you can swap it with another friendly creature in your battle line. So I thought, let's get this out right away. I have protection for the next two things I put down, and then it can help set up a really great turn where I have protected creatures, because I did have Mars in the deck, and I wanted to keep those Mars creatures safe that following turn. So I play it, pass my opponent. His immediate follow-up was a Hypno Beam. Stealing my Sanctum Guardian, <laughs> which is super funny. All right. This has been another episode of your favorite Keyforge podcast, Help from Future Self. My name is Alex, a.k.a. Scuzzy Gruen on Instagram and Twitter. Blake, where can people find you online? Best place to find me is actually on Twitter at BLVD Paper Fight. Also, same for my YouTube, where I am posting some gameplay there and unboxing. And uh, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter if you want to play a tabletop simulator game. I'm all for teaching and jamming games so people can get into the Age of Ascension a little deeper. Rick, where can folks find you online? I'm at the Wheeling Keyforger on Twitter and pass me a note. We can jam on the Crucible. All right, that sounds good. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. Keep forging. Keep forging.